The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he would send the crowds away. After sending the crowds away, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone while the boat, by now far out on the lake, was battling a heavy sea, for there was a headwind. In the fourth watch of the night, he went towards them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But at once Jesus called out to them, saying, Courage, it is I, do not be afraid. It was Peter who answered, Lord, he said, If it is you, tell me to come to you across the water. Come, said Jesus. Then Peter got out of the boat and started walking towards Jesus across the water. But as soon as he felt the force of the wind, he took fright and began to sink. Lord, save me, he cried. Jesus put out his hand at once and held him. Men of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And as they got into the boat, the wind dropped. The men in the boat bowed down before him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Jesus Christ. This is an iconic scene, isn't it? These readings, the first reading as well, are iconic vocation scenes of God calling us and the courage that that takes. This Sunday is actually the end of Vocations Awareness Week, the last week for Australia at least, has been a time where the church has tried to put this in the forefront of our minds. Vocation is the question of where God is calling us and God calls all of us to something particular because God doesn't see a big mob of nameless people the Good Shepherd knows his sheep by name. Typically, when we think of vocation in the modern, maybe secular context, we think of jobs, like vocational training, that kind of thing. And so it's not wrong to say, yeah, I feel called to carpentry, or I feel called to nursing, or I feel called to um, RCIA, or I feel called to uh, whatever. You know, we can be called to many things. But, but vocation runs deeper than this because you're not called to those things in a in a permanent kind of way. They're not vocational states. So let's get three layers of vocation in our minds and then let's turn to the gospel. Um, the first layer is the call to holiness. Everyone is called to holiness, which means being with God, being so close to God that God rubs off on you and then people start to confuse you with the divine life that God is sharing. Holiness is necessary for all of us. It's, it's, it's a constant, necessary goal that we're aiming towards. And it's hard to measure your own holiness, so I guess that's not really the point. But the point is to seek God, to keep your face fixed on Him at all times, uh, to be directed by Him. This is, this is our baptismal identity. So all of us are called to holiness. That's our first vocation. Then, though, the church has a sense that there are four vocational states in life. And in no particular order, these are married life, the priesthood, or I should say holy orders, because there's a few different degrees in there, but let's say holy orders, um, the religious life or consecrated life. Think of all of the beautiful 
uh, sisters and brothers and religious priests that we've seen. Even our Marist priests who have been here are fulfilling both vocations, the priesthood and the religious life. They're religious priests. Uh, think of some of the saints in just last week. Mary MacKillop, she founded a religious order, the Josephites. Uh, St. Clair of Assisi, one of her, the closest um, companion and friend of St. Francis, founder of the Poor Clares, etc., etc. There were many. Edith Stein, a Carmelite nun. Very different. They all had different characteristics. They had different missions. And, and they were fully, let's say, dedicated and employed for that mission, whether it be prayer or being with the poor or serving the, um, the sick or, or whatever the case may be. Religious orders have punctuated the life of the church for a long time. Then finally, the fourth vocational state, which is sort of the most ambiguous in a way, we might call single generous life in Christ. It means you're not necessarily wedded to any particular vocational state that we listed before, but you're most definitely seeking holiness with your whole heart. And, and like the mortar between bricks, you can sort of go where maybe those other vocational states can't go. Invariably, every parish has a good handful of these people who are, sure, not married, and they're not called to religious life or the priesthood, but by golly, the parish really does count on them. Like they are fulfilling their vocation. They're not waiting to be called somewhere else. Clearly, Jesus has got them exactly where he wants them. So the church would say that all of us should probably put our finger on the pulse of, well, where is God calling us in, in, in one of these four ways? And they take courage. I think like Peter, we have to say, Lord, if you're calling me to married life, then you call me out there and I'm going to try and walk. Lord, if you're calling me to the priesthood or to religious life, then you say the word and I'll, I'll, step, out on, I'll step out on the water. This is, this is vocation. This is vocare, God summoning us to himself in a particular way. Then finally, carpentry and all the rest can, can fall in the mix. Um, we should always keep this in our minds and we should always keep this in our prayer because it's no question that not only does the church need priests, but really the church needs religious. We sometimes forget that. Uh, how much poorer would this community be if Sister Norian were not still part of our orbit? And she's one. Like imagine having a, a whole crowd of them. <laughs> It'd be wonderful. The church needs that. It needs this powerful, radical witness of what we call the evangelical councils. Poverty, chastity and obedience. Religious give a witness that none of us probably can, even if we tried, and vice versa. Okay, so that's vocation. Let's, let's please keep that in our minds and genuinely ask God, where do you want me, Lord? I'll step out when you say the word. In that context, I'd like to talk about an interesting feature in today's readings, which sort of piggyback off last Sunday's readings, all in the context of vocation. It's the mountains. We've discovered before and we've seen in, in the readings that are given to us, mountains are always code for going up and meeting God. Usually a theophany of some kind happens on the mountaintop. Some kind of divine thing breaks forth. And usually the people are a bit in awe of what happens. Think of Moses in the burning bush. Think of the Ten Commandments. Think of, obviously, Elijah today going up into Mount Horeb. And a lot of them happen at Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is an interesting place because we know, we know that much happened there. It goes by two names in the scriptures. Horeb, which refers to the glowing heat of God. That's what the word kind of means. It's a glowing mountain. It's like, okay, because God is 
hot with holiness, let's say. So the mountain is resonating with this presence. But it's also called Mount Sinai, which is related to the word sin. It's simultaneously a place where God's grandeur is found and all of human silliness is sort of on display. It's funny, isn't it? In the one mountain, both are hypostatically present, which is the story of all of our lives, isn't it? God's holiness is here, and then we kind of turn up as well. We kind of make it a bit, a bit different. And God wants to work that way, like he prefers it that way. He doesn't want the whole show on him and no one else in there. What about these mountains then? Um, Tabor is different to the mountains we encounter today. In Tabor, Jesus gathers a select crew, not his 12, certainly not the whole crowd who he was feeding, but, um, but just, just the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he brings them up. And they have this privileged theophany, this privileged revelation of the divinity of Jesus, something that they couldn't figure out on their own. Like Jesus has to reveal that to them, and he does. They see it, they're a bit confused by it, but they hold it in their memory. They're not to tell anyone about it until the resurrection. This tells us something about vocation. It tells us that it's privileged. Jesus gathers, it, gathers us very intimately when he's disclosing his plan for us. He shows us maybe a glimmer of it, and maybe we don't really understand what we saw. And then he tells us in a, in a strange way to keep it private, to keep it in our hearts. By that I don't mean sit on it and don't do anything with it. But if someone here is discerning the priesthood, the last thing they should do is broadcast it to everyone before they talk to their bishop. They should talk to their priest. They should pray about it. They should talk to the vocations director. They should quietly discern with the church in the proper forums. Yeah? They should sort of keep it quiet. Um, I, I certainly had to do that because I was teaching and I didn't want to lose my job if I wasn't going to the seminary. But, but, but there came a time to, to tell it from the rooftops. Jesus went up there with the, with the sole intention of sharing that with them for the sake of their mission. The two mountains today are different because they're not Horeb, for one, and they're not Sinai either. Um, but one is... Oh, sorry, they are. <laughs> Table wasn't, sorry. They are, it's, uh, um, I've lost my place now. Horeb and Sinai. Jeez, uh, Elijah, thank you. I'm very tired. It's been a big day. Elijah goes up to Horeb. Why did he go up? Not to disclose uh, a theophany, not to reveal God. In fact, he was feeling the lack of God. His mission has hit a kind of very intense time, and in fact, he's been victorious. But even in spite of that, he has to run into the hills to seek some kind of consolation. Um, and he cries out to God. What does he see? And this is for us in our prayer life. He sees big displays, earthquakes, fire, hurricanes tearing the mountain down. And it says God is not in any of them. It's interesting that the scripture uses that very absolute language because as Catholics, we know what sacramentality is. We know that everything is at God's disposal if God wants to speak to us. Like God can speak to me through the, through the light that flickers in my, the side of my eye. God can speak through everything. It's all at his, at his disposal. We are not pantheists. We know that all of that stuff is not God. But if God wants to, God can speak through it. We typically wouldn't hesitate to say, yeah, God is, God is active in this stuff. But in that particular reading, I think it's interesting. The scripture says God is not in the hurricane. 
God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the fire. And I think it's to tell us that while God can speak through anything, it's a bit presumptuous to declare that God has spoken through the plethora of random things I might happen to like. And I see this, like we've spoken about this on Corpus Christi. Oh, I don't really go to church. I encounter God at the beach. I encounter God in the garden. And it's like, yeah, but is God actively speaking to you there? Or are you actively retreating from maybe an encounter that is a bit confronting? I mean, it, it rests with each of us to answer that question. I, I can't answer that for anyone. But I know that I run away from God at times. That's part of my prayer. Seeking God and then saying, hey, that's enough for now. I'll see you later when I'm ready. <clears throat> so God did not speak through those things for Elijah. And perhaps God is not speaking to, through the fonts that we regularly frequent. We might be challenged in that. Then there's the fourth phenomenon, which is really a lack of a phenomenon. I think that passage said he heard a quiet breeze or he heard a quiet whisper or something like that. The original translation is more like he heard a thin silence. Think about that. That's about as subtle as something can be. It's not just silence. It's, it's a thinned out silence. There's like a deafening nothingness. When St. John of the Cross was speaking of God, he said, nada, 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 nothing. God is not a thing. Like, I can't even sense this God. He's just, a, he's just a kind of vacuum of love drawing me into himself. Pretty intense. Elijah encountered this, let's say, nothingness, which is really the everythingness of God, an absolute presence. And he, and he encounters God and, and, and dialogues with him there. He's fortified for his mission. He goes back down the mountain. That's challenge to all of us in our prayer. Um, if anyone's ever done a Lectio Divina, you know that there's a long cascading journey to get to the last stage called Contemplatio. Lectio Divina is a way of reading the scriptures in a very deep, prayerful way. But you read it not once, not twice, not three times, four times. You really take your time with a short passage. You read it, that's Lectio. Then you read it again, that's called Meditatio. You're trying to press a little deeper in. Then you read it again, and that third time is called Oratio, which is what I've just read. I'm going to try and actually make my prayer to God, whatever it is. Lord, uh, say the word and I'll come out on the water. Help me walk on the waters of my life. Whatever. It becomes your own personal prayer. And then the fourth stage is Contemplatio. And the thing is, you cannot schedule, you can't say, okay, God, five minutes for Lectio, five minutes for orat, uh, Meditatio, five minutes for Oratio, and then I'll give you five minutes of contemplation. Okay, God, you speak profoundly in the last five minutes. You just can't do that. Like, God, God says, who are you? I will speak when I want to speak. You can't determine when and how I speak. I'm God. Which means if you want to do Lectio Divina, schedule yourself a good hour. Get through the first three, and then sit and wait for that deafening silence to settle upon you, for God to speak in all his grand terror. Because that's what we want. That's what we were made for. And it takes great patience to get there, to be drawn there. Finally, I want to say about the allegory of Jesus up in the unnamed mountain. We know Tabor, we know um, Horeb and Sinai. 
we don't get to know the name of this last mountain. And it's different to the other two because Jesus didn't go up to show anyone anything and it wasn't someone else going up to maybe stumble upon God. Jesus goes up. Why? It says he went up to pray. <clears throat> Who was he praying for? My reading of the gospel tells me that Jesus was the absolute opposite of um, self-concerned. He did not go up there because he needed a break. Okay? Get this idea out of your mind. Uh, if that helps us because we need breaks and, okay, I need to go up to the mountain sometimes, good. But Jesus was doing something out of love, as he always only ever does. He was up there to pray. And I think it's safe to say he was praying for his disciples who were out on the waters because he told them to be there. He knew they were there and the mountain overlooked it. So he's praying for his friends as they're negotiating a very tumultuous situation. A scary one, really, like genuinely threatening. Um, and he leaves them there for quite a while. Doesn't this sound familiar to our faith journey? Like, like, even though God is always with us, for some reason, God is happy to sort of be a little bit elusive. He doesn't continually interrupt and fix things straight away. In fact, some things don't even get fixed, it seems. And God, where are you? Up on the mountaintop, sort of blessing us from afar. It's pretty challenging. It's a good allegory for the church, absolutely. Actually, you'll hear this in our creed in a moment. Listen to this. I think this is this scene. <clears throat> this comes out of our creed. Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I know I'm making a bit of a far leap there. But where is Jesus, the head of the mystical body of the church? He's ascended bodily into heaven. And where the head has gone, the body will follow. But in the meantime, here we are, toiling on a tumultuous sea with all sorts of struggles and every chance of drowning, really. Jesus will come in a definitive way, but Jesus does come of his own will whenever, whenever he desires in particular ways. It's an allegory, too, of, I think, all of us. While we may not always be directly over the top of our loved ones, they are somewhere in our periphery. And I mean that even if those who've gone uh, beyond this life to the next. Even that ocean is big enough for Jesus to cover. And in his name, we watch over them, we pray for them, and they watch over us and pray for us while we both negotiate our respective storms. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? It's powerful and it's real. So we should take great heart in it. Finally then, I guess I want to say, while we pray as a praying people, we're going to have to negotiate some difficult stuff. Thank God we've got each other to do it because we can't do this alone. I often think even Jesus had someone to help him carry his cross. All the more we need it and we should lean on each other for that. But I think more than anything, the Gospels are calling us to move into that deep, quite scary form of prayer. There's words, but eventually the words fade away. There's feelings of all kinds, but eventually the feeding feelings also subside. There's um, plans and petitions and, and hopes. But eventually all of that thins out 
It becomes like a thin silence. And finally, we're face to face with the God who is. All is in his control. His love is enough to... His love subdues the entire universe. Do we really think he can't satisfy our needs, temporal and eternal? In this big ark that is the church, let's come before him, trusting him. And maybe instead of like Peter making a strange ultimatum to Jesus, let's ask, Lord, where are you calling me? Say the word and I will come.